Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a series exploring personal improvement and resiliency through interviews with soccer coaches from around the world. Beautiful Game is brought to you by Weasels FC, a brand for the tenacious, quick-witted, and occasionally underestimated. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better with more confidence, resilience, and success. So I'm here today with Sandra Dora Lyers. She's the head of women's football and manager at PSV Eindhoven. She's the founder of Julem Pro, an individual and group coaching service, and also does performance coaching with top athletes as a certified mental coach. She was a very talented player in her own right, played professionally, was an all-star at the University of Hartford, where they were regularly a top 10 team. She was an academic All-American, played for the Dutch national team, played for the Dutch futsal teams where she was a champion. As a glutton for punishment, she's still playing at, at a pretty high level these days, so her, her knees are holding up better than mine. Welcome, Sandra. Great to be here with you today. Thank you. Great. For, uh, thanks for having me. So we are sponsored by a brand called Weasels, and Weasels FC, we like to start with the, the first question of what do you think of the animal, a weasel? Yeah, to be honest, I, I didn't know that they live in Holland, but they do. I wasn't aware. I, I walk in the woods quite often with my with my dog, but I have never seen them. But what I know of them is that they like to be on their own and they like to eat mice, if I'm correct. That's true. That's true. That's as far as my knowledge goes. The Dutch for weasel is, I won't pronounce it correctly, but it's very similar to the, to the English. Yes, yeah, very similar. It's called basil. Vasil, I want to talk a little bit about your transition from playing. We were introduced by a former coach of yours, Mark Krikorian, who said to me that she was a very good player. She was a coach on the field. When you look through some of your playing history, when you were playing in the NCAA tournament, in the process up to that, the Hartford Current wrote that Dora Lyer enters all is well. What was the transition like for you from being a player with a coach's mentality to actually coaching in the game? That actually took some time. I played uh, futsal uh, until I was 30. Well, I still play at an at a all right level, but you know, at, at the highest level in the national team until I was 30 or 31. And then I actually decided to, uh, to quit soccer. So I, I didn't do anything in the coaching field up until three years ago. I pursued another career and in youth mental health care because I wanted to help young kids, you know, with issues uh, out on the streets to see if I can uh, reach out to them and, and have them uh, gain certain growth, which is more important than out on the field, I think. After some time, it helped me in, into deciding what I wanted to do, because as a player, of course, I was captain quite often. And uh, yes, I love to coach on the field and I love to help other players and to give them the right pass so they could do something right with it or give that key pass so uh, the striker could score. I loved that position that I had as an attacking midfielder. But yeah, then at one point I was, I think, eight years out or so and I was um, a team leader in, in different jobs in the youth mental health care. And then at one point I was like, I miss soccer, you know, I, I miss the mentality of, of pursuing, of reaching high goals and being at an elite level, I decided to quit my job, actually, and uh, to get my uh, coaching degrees. And at first I did it in, uh, in our town and I did a U17 team, which was very nice and learned a lot. And then the girls were great. And 
you know, but I was driven and I had to, you know, make them do more and wanted to do all these tactics with them, but they just wanted to play and have fun and stuff like that. I was like, okay, this is not really my my type of thing. So I did a, a course with former male pro soccer players. And one of them was coaching at PSV already. So I said, can you get me an intern job for the PSV women? So he did this and uh, he got me this intern job to be an assistant coach. And so I could get my degree in coaching the UEFA B license. And after that, they asked me to stay because uh, they said, okay, you know, this is interesting. You're a former national team player. We think we can have some use of you. So they offered me a job as an assistant. And also because of my management background, they said, okay, maybe you can also, aside from being an assistant, you can also be in charge of recruiting the players and signing the players and letting the players go. So I said, yeah, this is, uh, this is interesting. I'll uh, for sure do this uh, after a year. It was tough because I was the assistant on one hand and on the other hand, I had to decide whether players could stay or not. So as an assistant, you're supposed to be this second role of the head coach. You know, when the head coach that a player, you're as an assistant, go to this player and you say, okay, you know, it's all right. It's going to be all right. You have to look at it from a different perspective. But then I was also this other person saying, okay, well, you can come back next year. So I, I decided this wasn't the best option. And one of the CEOs, he asked me, okay, maybe you want to become the head of women's football. It's a, it's a new job. We haven't had this at PSV and we want to become more professional. And uh, yeah, we would like you to be in charge and uh, see if we can step up our women's soccer department more. I decided to do this because I, at one point I wasn't sure what I wanted. Now I also wanted to be out on the field. This is where my passion is to be out on the field and to see what happens and to make these girls and make great moves and great tags and stuff like that. Yeah, I had to step back a little bit, but I still try to be involved as much as I can out on the field and, and discussing a lot with our head coach, uh, the tactics and the players and stuff like that. So, which is, yeah, I'm actually very happy to roll them in right now. In that role, you don't get to coach directly, but you still have a great deal of influence in terms of what players you bring in and what style you want to play and what the tactics look like and whether the coach is doing a good enough job. Yes, definitely. And the head coach and I, we, we have a pretty good bond and he lets me actually be out on the field quite some, some time. And I don't coach players directly, but sometimes I walk up to them and say, hey, you know, you did really well in the game uh, last night, and but this and this you have to work on. So I do things a little bit if I really see that something needs to be said. But I always, you know, discuss this with the coach first because, you know, he's in charge of what happens on the field and if he's responsible and doing so. But we found a, a pretty good balance in um, coaching them. And, and sometimes I still uh, say what I think. And uh, yeah, of course, you know, when we have the staff meetings, uh, I'm there. And when we discuss tactics, I like to be involved as well. So yeah, I'm still pretty involved. And, and so part of that transition, other than just it's who you are, that ambition, that desire to win, that feeling that it's fun to compete in your playing career, was there a coach that taught you resilience or other mental skills? Yes, for sure. Mark Krikorian has been really important to me uh, in that regard. But, you know, I also think uh, playing in the U.S. as a collegiate player helped me very much. It was really awesome to see because when I was playing in Holland, I played for the national team, but we weren't as good as, as the Dutch national team is right now. You know, we, we didn't qualify for the Euros and we didn't qualify for the World Cup and stuff like that. So at the time when I decided to go to the U.S., we had actually a better team 
collegiate team than I think we had a Dutch national team. So for me, it was a step forward. And in the environment that I went to, it was a professional team as in the men's soccer at the time. And Hartford wasn't even that big of a school. I mean, Mark, of course, turned it into a, a top 10 program, but we didn't have the facilities that, you know, the UNC or the FSU or Stanford has. It was much less, but still, we had our own soccer field. The laundry's being done. We were doing lifting and stuff like that. And there were so many coaches out there. And But also, very importantly, there was this work ethic and players really wanted to compete and they wanted to be better every day and they wanted to do everything they could to be better. And I think that's something that I really learned a lot also from the American culture is that if you really want to achieve something, you can do it. It's really kind of like this the American dream. You know, if you have goals, you have to do everything you can in order to get those goals. And it's possible. That's what I learned from the US and that never went away. It, it became a part of me. And ever since, wherever I go or whatever I do, I always want to learn. I don't want to develop. And I, I want to be the best in what I can. And whether it's being a mom or being a spouse or being head of women's football, it's about always reflecting upon yourself and wanting to do a better job, saying at the end of the day, okay, what did I do right and what did I do wrong and what can I learn from this? And by setting this example for myself, it's also very easy to ask this from other people, to ask this from my staff, you know, okay, this is the example that I set, and I also want you to do this, but I also want you to tell me what I do wrong. It's not about me being in charge. Yeah, of course, in the end, I'm responsible, and if things go wrong, I'm the one people can look to. I also think it's very important that if I don't do something right, you have to tell me so I can learn, and if you don't do something right, I'm going to tell you as well. So I've tried to create a very open work environment where we can laugh and have fun, but also demand the most of each other. And uh, that's something that I really learned uh, in the U.S. actually. I think you could come back to the U.S. And, and teach some people now about the fact that being in charge doesn't mean you're always right. It means that there should be radical candor and, and candid feedback. And also, ultimately, being in charge means taking responsibility. For whatever happens, good or bad, you're responsible. Right. In the end, I'm always responsible. And you know, what I, I love most is I try to surround myself also with people that challenge me, you know, that make me think differently. I love it when people challenge me intellectually or in a creative way, you know, it can also be in music or whatever, but, but also intellectually that make me think, okay, this is, this is new, this is different. And how can I learn from this and, and put this into work or into parenting or whatever? It's, you know, the people that I look for that yeah, that can, uh, for some reason, find this creativity, but also that have passion for something else. I can re-respect this a lot. I love to be around those people that, that you know, can, can learn, teach me things and let me see things in a different perspective. That's something that I enjoy most, actually. That's why I do these interviews. I was on the debate team at the University of Michigan, and that was sort of the environment we were in, where everyone was capable of a high level of intellectual rigor, and we would disagree for fun, honestly, about various topics, sometimes purely as entertainment, and, and lots of times just to, to challenge ourselves and see how we could improve. And so when I meet people like you, I would say Mark, Anson Dorrance, Yael Everbush, we've had lots of interesting discussions like this, and it's, it's why I really enjoy doing this. When you think about 
your work as the founder of Julem Pro, part of that is that you're a certified mental coach. And I imagine that that's a little bit of what you still contribute on the training ground today. You say that you use Egan's model. What is Egan's model and how does it work? Well, actually, you know, to be honest, when I quit my job in management of youth mental health care, I started my own business because I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to help other people with whatever their field of development was uh, was necessary. But then I, I got this job uh, at PSV quickly. So I never really managed to start my business really well. So it's very hard. I, I didn't develop as much uh, in that field. You know, on one hand, it's it's a pity that I didn't get to do this. But on the other hand, right now I'm with the club that I love most and I'm having the job that I, I really wanted to have. So that's that's fine. Maybe one day I'll do this. But to get back to your question with Egan, it's all about basically what I, what I said before. It's what's the question you have? Where do you want to develop? And what do you have right now? And how are you going to set the right goals in order to achieve this? in giving people insight of how they can grow, but they have to think of their own growth. It's not about me telling them what to do. It's about finding the answers within yourself. And it's my responsibility also, you know, as a general manager right now, to help people find the right questions for themselves and how they can learn to grow. And then it's important that if they know where they want to go and what they want to achieve, how are they going to achieve this? So what are the steps you're going to take in order to achieve these things and break them into small pieces in order to achieve them? But it's all about asking the right questions to have people get the right insight in themselves. And if they are willing and open to ask these questions, they will find the answers themselves. It's all within themselves, I think. And part of that counseling process of creating that willingness in Egan's model is having an approach of collaboration and warmth and acceptance for where they are, which you definitely had to use in your previous work with Bijander Jugdwerk, which was the youth counseling, you know, up to 27 years old, working with people with complex developmental or behavioral problems. And then at Street Corner work as well, which is this is sort of the previous career that you've mentioned at Street Corner work, working with youth and homeless people and people struggling with addiction. As you apply it in your current role, do you find that top athletes have different problems or different developmental challenges or different mental issues? Or is it sort of a question of type and severity? Yes, I do think it's different because, you know, the issues that I saw these people had to deal with when I was working for Street Corner Work, they were really severe. There were kids that didn't have a house that didn't have a roof over their head to sleep. They didn't have food. They had a lot of debt. They were doing bad things in order to get some money and stuff like that. So it's it's basics, you know, and they didn't have their basics. So that's that's way different from the kids and the players that, that you're coaching right now. So there is a, a big difference, I think. Of course, significant structural differences, but in terms of the mental problems, yeah, well, one of the things that I do think are very similar is the manner of approach. These kids in street corner work, they were in the inner cities of Amsterdam. There was the baddest neighborhoods in Amsterdam, the baddest neighborhoods of the, of the country. But there I was out on the streets trying to connect with, with them, you know. And what I think is important, if you stay yourself, if you're altruistic and if you're sincere, in wanting to get to know the other one 
and wanting to know what the other one's issues are, whether it's the basics of addiction or debts or whatever, or whether it's that they're insecure or they want to reach these certain goals, but they don't really know how to set these goals. It's about reaching out, asking these questions and be sincere of how they're feeling about this and wanting to deal with these things. And I think that's one of the things that I try to do is that I'm, I'm trying to be sincere in, in whatever issues they are dealing with and uh, trying to help them deal with it by asking the questions, but also by uh, trying to understand what they're going through. I think that one of the criticisms of Egan's model is that critics anyway say it's this artificial way to display empathy to then get your subject to open up. But I think in reality that it's useful tools for people who maybe aren't as naturally empathetic to cultivate empathy. And I think what you're describing is that an approach that is sincere and empathetic is a much better way for any coach or mentor or boss to get their employees or players or clients to be able to achieve their goals, to help them if you are able to put yourself in their shoes a bit. Yes. And, and it's very different in my role right now than it was when I was working at Street Corner Work because these guys that are out on the streets, they know right away if you're sincere or not. And they know right away, you know, if you're there to help them or not. So yeah, that was definitely a skill that was being asked of me. They, they knew. And, and the role that I have right now, I try to live it out as equally as possible. But in the end, I also know I am finally the one who's responsible. So I know that at one point they will have to listen to what I have to say. But I know that this is the case but I don't try to uh, take advantage of it. For me, what is important in my role also as a head of women's football is to have this vision, to know where you want to go, how you want to get there. Again, you know, it's kind of like uh, Egan again, but then, okay, this is what I want to achieve with Peace with Women. And then you think of how you want to achieve this and you try to tell your story of, okay, this is what I really genuinely feel is necessary for this department. Luckily, I was persuasive enough to have the CEO say, okay, yes, I do think she is doing something right. And yes, she has shown that she can recruit the right players. She selected the staff. And yes, now all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years ago, we were founded in 2012 only with PSV. And yeah, it was for the men's team standards, top team in Holland. But the women's side, they weren't doing as well. They were fourth. They, they couldn't really compete for championships. So when they decide also to appoint me, they said, okay, this is your goal. We have to become a top women's side as well. And we want to invest, so we're going to appoint you as the head of women's football. We've never done this before, but this is what we want. So tell me your story. How are you going to do this? So, yeah, I told them the story, this uh, how I wanted to do things. And, of course, I, I could show them by recruiting the players and also appointing a new head coach and stuff like that. All of a sudden, last year, we were, we were competing. And then everybody could see, oh, yeah, this is this is turning into something really nice. And what's interesting to tell also is that before that, within PSV, there was women's football or women's soccer, as, as I should say, uh, overseas. But there was women's soccer. And, but we weren't taken as seriously as, as we should. What you've been used in, in Canada and in the U.S. is that it's always been a women's game. But, you know, in, in Holland, this wasn't the case. And... Of course, winning the Euros for the women's national team in 2007 helped a lot. 
But after that, also that we were showing that we could recruit the right players. We could have the players follow this program that was a top program with all the conditions, you know, like strength and mental help and with a, a food specialist and all these things that we were uh, slowly growing into this better team. And then all of a sudden, within the men's department, they were saying, oh, these, these women, they, they can play. And they were starting to take us seriously. It took some, I think it took two years or so that we were, we have a really nice soccer complex, which is actually very high standards. It's one of the, yeah, it can compete with a top English academy and stuff like that. They were redoing this. And before we, we had this office that was somewhere remotely away from where all the stuff happened. And now they were saying, no, no, we, we do think we have to take you seriously. And yeah, they gave us this office right next to Ruth van Nistelrooy and right next to the performance staff and the highest team of the academy. So right now we've been really integrated there, and, and which was key. And yeah, they're taking us seriously, which I, I'm actually very happy that as a staff and all the players, we worked really hard and we still have to keep on working. But yeah, I'm very happy that we have accomplished this. Something that I see from coaches who work primarily in the women's game is that the things that they already know and have known for years about empathy and communication and how motivation works in still a very competitive environment, some of those things as society in general changes, I think people in the men's game are understanding you can't be a drill sergeant if you want to get the best out of your players. And so there's probably an opportunity for them to start learning from you, maybe even more than they realize. Yeah, um, I actually think you're right, you know, and, and it's uh, it's been a men's world, especially in Western uh, Europe, but also Eastern Europe, of course. But in, in Europe, it's been a yeah, men's society. I think U.S. is a little more ahead with the quality issues and stuff like that. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, it's a long way to go, but I do think you're a little more ahead and things are changing slowly. And I find it within the club as well before they wouldn't even bother listening to you. And that is changing. They are more aware of your opinion and of the capabilities that you have and also that our women's program has. But yeah, I mean, it's still you have to work twice as hard to, to prove yourself. And, you know, I don't mind. It's all right. It's fine as it is. So let's talk about both motivations of the players and organizationally. So from a psychological perspective, you know, you've got Daniel Kahneman who talks about prospect theory and loss aversion that that people are motivated more by their fears than they are about the the chance of success. There's an American venture capitalist and essayist Paul Graham who in his essay to high school students about how they should think about the world and how they should evaluate opportunities and, and possibilities and what they should focus on learning. And there's a line in there that talks about, you don't see faces much happier than people winning gold medals. The reason is a sense of relief. So in terms of the top players that you're working with, you're recruiting, and PSV as as an organization whose expectations are you're going to start beating Lyon in the Champions League soon, and that, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> or at least at least playing and, and competing in the Champions League, right? As a certified mental performance coach, and in your role as GM at PSV, how do you see? organizational motivations and individual player motivations? 
Yeah, well, you, you started off saying that fear is what drives people. Yes, I do think fear is something that drives people, but I don't think ultimately it's the right motivation, to be honest. Not necessarily as a tool to motivate, just that humans are more likely to be successful because they are afraid of failing than they are because of their desire to succeed. Is this a scientific research that has been done? Well, so it is some scientific research by a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman. And so it's this, this idea of prospect theory. He could be wrong. So what do you think? Well, I think there, there are more ways to succeed. And yes, this could be definitely could be one of them because here you're this top athlete, you have this top team and you have to win every game, every game. Actually, when we were with PSV last year, we have a strange league in the way it's set up. We have eight teams and you play home and away game. And after that, the top four teams, they play this playoff round. But your points that you manage to get, they're cut in half. So last year, there we were. We were this, this, this best team after the regular competition. I know in the U.S. it's even worse with the playoffs and you've been doing well all year. I think it's ridiculous because I think the best team is uh, the best team who managed to do well throughout the entire year and not just in playoff time. Because, you know, you have to experience and deal with these ups and downs throughout the whole year. Then we were this team. We were up after a regular competition. And then this was the first time, you know, okay, here's this, this whole country looking at us that we can become champion. And then we couldn't manage we, we lost against the top teams when we really had to win last year, and it was brutal. So what you're saying is that players were so afraid, the pressure was so high, and they were afraid to fail, and they wanted to win so badly that they kind of choked. They couldn't show it when they needed to, to do so, because it was also new to them. Some of the players had championships with other teams uh, prior to that, but within the environment of PSV, of being the one that other teams wanted to beat in order to become champion, it was tough. And um, the players learned so much from it. And we had this extensive evaluation with the staff because also we failed as well. I failed as well. You know, it was when it managed, we couldn't prepare our players well enough to feel secure enough and not to be afraid to fail, I think, because I think that's, that's where it goes wrong. If you are afraid to fail, it sends out the wrong energy. I think you need to find the energy of having the belief that you're good enough to win and that you're better than the opponent and that you're this good that you can win. So I, I would rather believe in the positive energy of really, truly, intrinsically believe that you're better than your opponent. And that's when I think you can win. And in order to do so, it's not about the game and then showing that you're the better one. It's about trying to have these elements within everyday work environment that you want to be better, that you want to improve, that you want to be a better person as well, not just a better athlete, but also a better person, to be also a better teammate, but also to want to develop in your sleeping patterns or your diet or whatever. You want to be a better person. So one of the things that we changed and that we, you know, we didn't have, have the money to invest in that in last year, but that's what we changed um, in regards to this year, is that we added a mental coach. She's a woman who had been to the Olympics in Atlanta playing softball. She actually said the same things you're saying. It's, it's like, I was so afraid to fail that I couldn't even join myself out on the field. It was horrible. 
And looking back, it's such a pity because there I was supposed to have the time of my life, but I, I didn't. I didn't have this. And there were these other teammates that didn't do as much and didn't give as much effort as I did, but they could care less whether they could deal with the pressure or not. They, they didn't think about it. So it made her think, okay, what's happening with me and what's happening with these other players and how they deal with pressure and stuff like that. We've had players this year to have them counseled by her and that's helped quite a lot. And so last year we couldn't win these top games against Ajax and Twente. And this year we won all of them. That's what makes it really interesting. And uh, it really has to do with the belief of feeling that you really are best and not just out on the field, but in every little step that you take. It has to be with every vessel within yourself that you have to do this. And so you're also responsible for the academy and developing young talent. What's the approach there in terms of making sure that you are not just developing kids who can play football, but that you have that holistic approach, that you are helping them be confident in their identity, not just in the game, but in life? Yes, Within my job, it's there's I have so many things that I'm responsible for, so I cannot be with the academy as much as I want to. But I do think that we have a really good staff where they are uh, guided. So it's actually very extensive in, in terms of they have a lifestyle coach. They have a psychologist that is uh, connected to them, aside from the assistant coaches and the goalkeeper coach and the head coach and stuff like that. So there is more concern about how they're going to deal with going to school, being a good person, and also being a player in order also to have this right time management, but also dealing with the questions, okay, I'm, I'm growing older, I want to be a top player, I might succeed, I might not. So all these issues, yeah, you have to be very careful with these young talents and, and guide them really well because you know, the age that, that they're at, it's 15 through 18, and it's it's crucial. You want to prepare them, and on one hand, you want to be, okay, this is what we expect, and we want to have leadership, and we want to have responsibility for your own actions, but they're also young, you know, so you have to guide them and yeah, make sure that they're taught lessons or you ask the right questions so they can develop themselves. And I would say that every coach and parent and many educators, the reason why they have kids play sport is because they talk about this idea that they're having fun, but they're also learning transferable skills. The reality is that unless those skills actually transfer to a new environment, it isn't true. <laughs> the basic premise isn't true unless the skills actually transfer. So is there anything that you do organizationally or that you've seen or experienced to actually help players transfer those skills that they learn in the game to other parts of life? Yes, for sure. Being a player, it has so many things. And also I, I speak of experience. I think I have my greatest experience in what I do right now. I learned on the field. I learned how to work with other people. I learned how to communicate. I learned how to collectively have this goal and, and together work towards this goal. I learned how to succeed. I learned how to fail. I saw other people do really well, much better than I did. But I also saw other people struggling and I wanted to help them. So it's, it has all these assets 
that teaches you being a person how to deal in the big world, so to speak. And it doesn't have to be in the top level. It has to be if you compete within a team, you can learn so much. And also, it's not about winning. It's about learning. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And I can also uh, compare it to my, my oldest daughter. She is playing field hockey and she's in this team, which is, isn't the best team, but they're having fun and they're trying to work together. And the first part of the season, they're losing every game, but they're trying and they're working hard at practice. And then also they, they win a game, you know, and then they lose again, but then they win a game. And you see the joy that they have, even losing 5-2, but still scoring this goal and being as happy as can be. So it teaches so many things, the game, and, and whether it's at a high level or at a recreational level, I think it's so important for, for kids to, to have this. And also, it's not only about having good feelings. It's also about how you're going to deal with feelings that aren't as good, you know? For example, that a teammate is yelling at you. It's okay. How are you going to deal with this, you know? And ask questions. Okay, what did you think when she was yelling at you? I didn't like it. Well, what could you have done? That's all these little things. And it's not about saying, okay, well, next time you have to yell back. No, it's about having them and making them think, okay, what is happening with my feelings? And do I change it? How can I change it? That's what you're doing. And that's what I'm trying to do as a parent, but also as a general manager. It's in every field. And so for the players that make it beyond a recreational level that you are bringing in from the youth team into the first team or when you're recruiting for new signings, what are the characteristics of the players who make it versus those who don't? Obviously, there's a different level of talent, but from a mental standpoint, is it a different level of resilience? What I think makes PSV or makes me in recruit quite successfully so far is that I always want to talk to the players myself. You know, I want to talk to them and I want to connect with them and see, okay, what kind of personality do you have? And for me, because it's a team sport and yes, of course, sometimes you have to have selfish players on the team because if you have this selfish goal scorer, she will score this goal. So you do need different types of personalities. But in general, I do think it's really important that you're open and that you're curious towards learning, towards other people or towards whatever. And that's actually the key thing that I always try and look for. Is somebody asking questions or not? If they don't have any questions, when I'm talking to a new player, something's up. Whether you're from Australia or from the US or from Jamaica or from Mexico, you step into this new environment, or whether you're from Holland for the same matter, you step into this new environment, you're about to make a really big decision about what your next club is going to be. You have to ask yourself all these questions because if you don't have any questions, then you're not well prepared. So I do think that's one of the main things that is very important to me. What kind of questions is somebody asking? And also in what manner are they answering the questions that I ask? So one of my questions that I always ask is, what are your goals in three or five years? What do you want to achieve? And if players say, I don't know, then, well, then they're not fit because you need to have this goal. You need to work through these goals. What we're doing with the women's side is that, yes, we work with, with all these small goals. We have goals throughout the year, but we also have goals throughout the week, you know, in making a game plan and, and winning against the next opponent. 
So it's always about, okay, you have to have this focus and this intrinsic motivation to want to be the best that you can be and also know where you're going to go. And if you are capable in doing this together and achieving the same goal together, then you're going to achieve it. In 2012, there's a Radio Netherlands story that it was about women's football and that it was it was on the verge of breaking through, but there would probably be at least five years before there was really big success. And it was around 2012 that PSV started their women's team. It was five years later that Holland won the European Championship in 2017. One of your, I would say, personal accomplishments has been the work at PSV on the collective labor agreement of the professionalization of the women's game. You've talked about some of the things, getting them more on equal footing with the men's first team. You mentioned also that things are a bit farther ahead in the U.S., but I've spoken with Yael, who's the president of the NWSL Players Union, with Sarah Applehagen, who played at Bayern Munich and in the NWSL. How is it still different in the women's game and what else can be done to get it to the sort of same, not level of game or... or... Acceptance, maybe. Yeah, I think acceptance is a good word. Yeah. I actually listened to Jill's podcast that you had with her, which was really interesting. It was very interesting to hear what she had to say. Well, what I do think is, I think it's also a cultural aspect. I think when I was playing in the U.S., If you could do something really well, people would respect you for being good at something. And I think here in the Netherlands, it's still, if you're too good at something, people tend to get maybe a little jealous or so. That's the basic thing that is different. That's one aspect that's maybe a bit more cultural. On the other hand, it also simply has to do with achieving, you know, If the women's national team didn't win Euros, we wouldn't be as far with PSV as we are right now because that opened doors and it made people see, oh, there's large crowds that want to go to these games. There are large crowds that want to watch them on TV. So there are so many people watching the women's national team right now which is amazing, you know, we, we have the record of attendance within the, uh, our stadium, the Philips Stadium of PSV, of the Dutch national team, over 30,000 people there. That wasn't possible a, a couple of years ago. And so with the national team coming to PSV, it also opened up some of uh, my colleagues' eyes on the men's side, saying, okay, we can actually make money of these women. Because when PSV first started, It was more about, okay, you know, we have to, for the community purposes, we have to have women's soccer and stuff like that. It's all these stories that happen all over the world that happen in in Eindhoven as well. And now they're saying, okay, these can actually play. And it's not just women or children that are watching this. It's whole families that are watching this. And whereas in the men's side, it's maybe a bit more dominantly males who are watching this. In women's soccer, it's families who are watching this. So there's actually a new crowd that wants to come and watch this as well. So all these people are thinking right now, okay, we can actually make money off this. I think that is changing. So that is really good. And the next step with the collective labor agreement, that's another step again towards women athletes. These female athletes, they're working really hard. They're pro athletes. So we have to have a set of rules 
they can go back to if things aren't working out the way they hoped they were working out. So yeah, I think that's another step in the game and we have a long way to go. But yeah, it's small steps, I think. I think we're, we're slowly improving. You've talked about the, the history of PSV in the women's Eredivisie. Your first season working with them, your first official season, not the internship season, they finished fifth, then the, your second season in third place. This season, you've added a U21 team, you've worked on the collective labor agreement. Right now, you're seven points clear of Ajax at the top of the table. Always good to be ahead of Ajax. Yes, always. <laughs> but now we're in the middle of a global pandemic. It must be a bit frustrating for all the work to come together. And now you're on hold. What will happen with the season? And what are you saying to your players and staff? Of course, it's a pity that we cannot right now keep on playing. But that's one of the things that I also said very early on, actually. I said, okay, you know, this is such a severe virus and it's health at stake. And then all of a sudden, soccer isn't as important anymore. So we're not going to play. Some other teams didn't let their foreign players go back to their countries because the league was postponed first until uh, three weeks after that. And now it's another three weeks. But very early on, I said, okay, you know, these players, they're here on their own. They want to go back to their families. So let's have them go home again, because this is not about soccer anymore. It's about wanting to be with your loved ones and getting through this crisis and having people staying safe. So yes, of course, it's a pity that we cannot probably, or we don't know how the league is going to end and if we're going to keep on playing, but it also right away puts it into another perspective. It's just soccer. So it's strangely, you know, because here you are working day and night, trying to achieve this with the women's side. And then this major thing happens. And then you're like, okay, this is not as important as it is. And easily you can find yourself at ease with it. So that's something that was very interesting for me to, to experience that, oh yeah, of course, you know, I want to become champion. And it's great to earn the respect for all the work that our staff and the players have put in. But on the other hand, it starts with, with health and happiness and then there's soccer. So it's not that big of a deal, of course. But as soon as we don't know what's going to happen with the league, it has to do with the UEFA, what, what the UEFA will decide. And uh, I think they're going to make a decision April 23rd. And whatever they decide, we're going to follow what they want us to do. And if it's safe enough to play again, we're going to play again. And if they say it's not safe enough to play, then we're going to end the league. And yes, that is a pity, but that's what it is, you know. We have a good program. We have good players. We're going to have good players again next year. We're going to have even better players, I think. So there will be other opportunities. It's not about this one title or not. It's about working together day in, day out, and feeling that you're working and doing something good, which gives you a lot of satisfaction. And of course, it will be great to have this championship. I mean, I won't lie about it. But if it's not, it's not, you know, then uh, at least probably we're going to have this Champions League spot and we're going to play Champions League for the first time. And there will be another, other great things that will happen. And then I will wait for another year. One of the things that you've made clear is that part of what makes you happy is competing, but also learning and continuously improving. How do you evaluate your own work to make sure that your work and 
view on the world and whether it's as the general manager or as a parent, how do you evaluate your own efforts to make sure that you're continuously improving? Well, I'm my my own biggest critics. I do a lot of thinking on my own and I'm constantly thinking, okay, what have I done? What can I do better? Was this good? Yes, I'm actually satisfied or I'm not. Or, And I always try to talk to other people, you know, like the people that I mentioned earlier, who can challenge me, who can be critical and who dare to be critical towards me. So I try to surround myself with those people who might not think alike, but do have a, some type of intellectual level in their field of expert. So I like to surround myself with those people that are at some things really good. And so they can teach me and, and we can have these discussions about it. So that's how I try to uh, evaluate. And of course, I, I try to ask the people that I work with, but also my children, okay, you know, what did you think what I did there? I ask questions again, you know, was this all right? And then sometimes, you know, I, I evaluate myself, for example, something I did to my child uh, or a discussion. And I, and I said, okay, well, now I told you this. What did it make you feel? And sometimes my daughter will say, well, yeah, you got mad real quickly. And I just want to explain something. I said, yeah, actually, you're right. You know, next time I don't think I should do this anymore. So, yeah, of course, I, I ask a lot of questions to the people and I, and I try to invite them to be critical and to say if they disagree and if they see things differently. That's actually what I always try to do. I think that in particular, when you're in a position of authority, whether it's as a parent or as the general manager or the CEO, that you have to invite people to sort of give you that feedback because they might be afraid of doing it naturally. So that's a great lesson. And humor is very important. Through humor, you can learn a lot because you can make jokes to people and they can make jokes back to you. And if they feel confident enough to make jokes back, it's like, okay, then we've agreed on this kind of level. So it's, it's humor is really important to me as well, actually. Thanks so much, Sandra. I really enjoyed meeting you and enjoyed the discussion. Hopefully, once the crisis is over, I'll get to meet you in person sometime. Yes, I would love to have you come to Holland and show you around. It would be a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you also have some new ideas and inspiration to live, work, and play better. Please subscribe to get future episodes. And you can join the conversation with your host, Tony Niccolo, on Twitter at WeaselsFC. FC.